you guys will uh, open up your Bibles uh, to John 17. So in the blue pew Bibles, that's going to be t- page 903. Uh, we're going to start by reading Jesus' prayer in the upper room on the night before he was betrayed uh, in verses 20 through 26. Now this was a prayer he prayed where all of his disciples could hear it. And of course it got recorded because it was a prayer not only for them, but it was a prayer for us and all believers uh, for our unity based on (laughs) Jesus' unity with the Father and Christians' union with him. So, uh, John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now uh, we're going to turn over to Second Peter one. So that's going to be on page one thousand and eighteen of the Blue Pew Bibles, and we're continuing in our series. We've been going through that we've been calling memory, man- manners, and mandates for God's minority people. So we worked our way through all of First Peter, and now we've just kept on trucking right into Second Peter, uh, and. Both of these letters are probably to the same church, but a few years apart. And so today we're picking up in 2 Peter 1, uh, and we're gonna, I'm going to read all of verses 3 through 11, but I'm really just preaching on verses 3 and 4, and Pastor Mike is going to come back around to the same passage next week uh, and preach on verses 5 through 11. So just to remind you, uh, last week... Peter began to pray that grace and peace would be multiplied to these Christians and all Christians in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. And then he continues starting in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, writing, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lack, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All that I've read to you from the Gospels, from Second Peter, uh, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray for its preaching. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have given us all that we need for life, for godliness. We admit and confess we don't always take hold of it the way we should, and we're grateful that even then your grace shines through. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, grip our hearts this morning and show us who we are in Christ and who you are and who you are calling us to be and who you are making us into so that we may be in you and you in us. And inspired and instructed by your word, would you conform us all the more to the divine nature. We ask you to do this work through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, you might remember that in 1 Peter, a lot of the manners and mandates he was talking about had to do with suffering. But here, it's a couple of years later, and that seems to have sort of cooled off, at least for a minute. Now, we sort of know from history that was going to rev back up pretty soon. But a lot of what we're going to see throughout all of Second Peter, so some spoilers here, is Peter dealing with errors and false teachers who, are, who have special teachings that have a way of popping up, uh, historically speaking, especially when heat has recently died down. I'll just give you two examples to prove my point. Uh, this happened actually in the 3rd and 4th century, right? Persecution on the churches was easing up. Constantine was coming into power. They weren't throwing Christians to the lions anymore. And all these heretical teachers and sects start showing up, and the church goes, oh, we all got to get together and, and put an end to this. And so we got the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, which really just said, no, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. This is who it says Jesus is. And they put down a lot of errors that, to be real honest, sound a lot like what Peter is going to address in uh, this letter. And then, uh, over a thousand years later, it happened in America. Uh, so, uh, after the War of Independence, right, we get into the early 1800s, we get through the War of 1812, America's sort of coming into its own in the 18-teens, and then we get into the 1820s, and once again, all these false teachers with special teachings and special knowledge start popping up, 
and proliferating, some of which are still around today. Maybe you've heard of some folks called the Mormons, right? They are these Gnostics, these special knowledge Christians that, don't, that have added significantly to the Bible and taken away anything that contradicts their views. So, when you've been through a lot of suffering, when you've been through a lot of pressure, and you're trying to figure out life on the other side of that, it can often sound really nice to go find some special knowledge. Because sometimes there's an emptiness on the other side of high-pressure situations. Uh, I actually heard on the radio this week uh, there's this woman in Ukraine, and right uh, in Kiev, life is sort of normalish, or at least trying to be that way, even in the midst of bombs going off. And she was talking about meeting friends for coffee at the local coffee shop, and how she felt guilty when she went to get her hair and her nails done, even when she could hear explosions in the distance, because it feels weird to go on with life as normal instead of doing something special right after a time of severe crisis. I know this because of my own experience. Um, We went through a a number of difficult situations that I just don't have time to tell you all about and some I can't tell you about, but we went through some really hard things and it can feel very strange to be Finally, settling into what I think the Apostle Paul would call the quiet, godly life. Um, There can be a sort of emptiness, and it seems like, uh, you know, there's some special knowledge or some special thing you need to be doing to get ready for it to heat up again. And maybe you felt that call to a special knowledge. If I could just figure out this one thing, I'd have the Christian life figured out. Sometimes it expresses itself in seeking satisfaction through more sinful means. Uh, Or sometimes it expresses itself as worrying about, you know, creating the next big scenario so you can figure out how you're going to handle whatever comes and try to have all the special truths to prepare you and help you figure it out. And Peter wants to come in and say, listen, you, you don't need any of this special knowledge. There's no big secret God has given you all you need. God has given you all you need. That special thing you're looking for, you have it. It's right here for you. But it might not be what you expect because it's, to be flippant, it's just Jesus. (laughs) Right? But Peter's saying you need to seek the knowledge of him which is readily available, and that is all you need. And God has given you all you need by his power, through his promises, to make you, to make us partakers of the divine nature. Which sounds very Gnostic in and of itself for a minute. right? But Christians, I want you to know, you have all you need for life and godliness. And anyone who's not a Christian... All you need is available to everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just come and get it. But I've, no, I don't care what you've done. Just come and get it. 
And I want to encourage you today by telling you about that power, those promises, and I want to try and air out what it means to be partakers. And of course, that's the three points that are on the back of the worship guide for you note-takers out there. Uh, So let's begin with the power. Uh, Peter says that there is a power, his divine power, that has given us, granted to us all things for life and godliness. God's power. The power that created the universe. The power that showed itself in all the incredible miracles of both the Old and New Testament. The power that physically, blood, body, bones, toenails, and hair raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And will one day raise us from the dead in the same way. Peter says it is that power that has miraculously given us everything that goes into a life of pleasing God, which is what life is all about. And we experience and even access that power by getting to know personally and intimately the one who has invited us to God. We grow in knowing God's power as we seek to increase in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior, the lover of our souls. Because it's he who has called us to his own glory, his own majesty and beauty and excellence. In fact, it is those very traits through his power that touch our hearts, that draw us to him, and that belong to us. Like, would you? You have access to God's power. If If you feel like you may have walked into like a Pentecostal service, maybe you have. So, the first thing we need to do is make sure we know this power. So friends, I want you to make sure you're a Christian, okay? Make your calling and election sure. And you do that this way. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior? Do you know that your own goodness could never save you? Do you know that you have so much corruption and sinful desire in you that God would never accept you and you will never be good enough because of that corruption and sinful desire? Good, then you can have Jesus and you can have God as the lover of your soul. Do you know that it's God's divine power that calls you and grants you salvation? And do you know that it is Jesus Christ who is your Lord and Savior who has loved you, seen your failure, loved you anyway, died on the cross and risen again for your justification? My friends, you're a Christian. And if any of those things aren't you, well, look to Jesus. Let them be you. (laughs) Where you see, and right, if you're being honest with yourself, you see your own failure even in that. You see where you hope in other things. You see where you trust in yourself or something besides Jesus. And even there, you're still a Christian. Just run to Jesus. Confess that because he knows we're sheep who wander. And he is our Savior who is glad to forgive and receive. And it's his power that showed you even that to begin with. When you know Jesus is your power and that he has given you everything, that's why I wanted you to meditate on John 16. 
He has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. You have unending hope. Hope that you actually can successfully make the effort to supplement faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. That's not what I expected the power of God to do. I love uh, Chris Green, who's a British scholar, comments on this passage. People look back to Jesus' remarkable teaching and miracles and rightly think that they see there the great power of God. But Peter sees a greater working of Jesus' divine power in the seemingly unimpressive reality of men and women able to live lives that honor Jesus. That's God's power. And that you have hope when you fail. I know I've already said that, but I'm going to keep saying it because you ain't heard it enough. <laughs> okay? You have hope when you fail because you know you're plugged into Jesus. Your processing isn't done. And there's forgiveness. And there is power to try again. Right? Because if you try and do those things without Jesus... It's like trying to, use, trying to do a, you know, high-dollar graphic stuff on your laptop when you're not plugged into an outlet. Uh, your laptop's going to shut down in about five seconds, and you're not going to accomplish it. Right? You've got to plug in. Now, the fact that we have all things, that Jesus has given us all things, does mean that we can never make excuses. I just can't. I'm too sinful. I'm not capable. I I just can't get past this thing. I don't have what it takes to grow in this way, and I don't have what it takes to say no to this sin or temptation. We can never say that, because yes, you do. Yes, we do. We have everything we need for life and godliness. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You legalist? Well, it's true, we do fail. I. I'm glad you don't know how much I fail, or I might not be a pastor. (laughs) Right? Because while we can never make excuses... And we shouldn't because we won't grow that way. We won't grow in these attributes. We won't grow in godliness, making excuses. When we fail, there is still forgiveness. And God's love and mercy are always new. And we can know we do have the resources to repent. Right? Uh, God is opposed to earning, but he's not opposed to effort. <laughs> and my friends, we have God's power at our disposal to grow. And God's power has called us through knowledge by which we have been granted his precious and very great promises. As we grow in knowledge of the one who has called us, we are encouraged more and more by his promises. I, part of the reason I'm just carrying the Bible around this like this is because I just have these two verses memorized, right? So, anyway... Uh, now, what promises has God made to us? All right, so kids, pop, qu- pop quiz. Has God promised you good health at all times? No. 
Peter's in prison about to be executed, which, by the way, is not good for your health. Um, has, uh, may, maybe grow, pop quiz grown-ups, has God promised you wealth and political power? No. The Christians have been and are about to again be persecuted and run out of their homes uh, at this point. So that can't be it. So what promises do we have? Well, from Joshua 1.5, we know that God will never leave you or forsake you. From Paul, we know that God will do, bring to completion in you the good work which he began in you at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the Lord Jesus, we know that we will be raised from the dead on the last day and that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we know that one day God will wipe away every tear from every eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away and all sad things will come untrue. You have those promises. And these promises hold us. They hold us in emptiness. They hold us in suffering. They hold us in confusion. We have promises that hold us. They hold us when we have sin, need forgiveness. We have promises that hold us. And so we need to remember them. Stop to remember who you are in Christ. Stop to remember whose you are in Christ. Do you know who you are in Christ? A child of God. Getting the full inheritance that Jesus Christ himself gets by the divine power that called you to these precious and very great promises. Now let me ask you, how does what we've been granted, what we've been promised, experientially change how we experience our circumstances now? What is it like to rest in a promise? I always think of an illustration I've heard over and over. Two people got hired to do the same menial job, you know, putting widgets together in a factory. Uh, and one person showed up every day, and I mean, they showed up, and they did their job, and they were sort of grouchy, and they didn't want to be there, and they left as soon as they could, and they were grumpy. And the other person came in, did the same job, but they, you know, they had a spring in their step. They were fairly happy about it. Now, what was the difference between those two, you might be wondering? Well, it turns out uh, a shrewd manager had made a deal. You see, these widgets were very important, and they sold for a lot of money, apparently, because the one person, the grumpy person, had been told if they'd do this job for one year, they'd be paid $30,000. So, you know, a less than middle class wage for this menial job they hated. The other person also had a menial job that they genuinely didn't like, right? They weren't comfortable, they didn't like it, it wasn't fun. But it turns out they had bargained to be paid $30 million at the end of one year. One of these people was happier to come to work than the other one. One of these things is not like the other one. For you Sesame Street fans out there, oh, that's, sorry, that's a, that's a Muppet show. 
All right, so my friends, payday is coming for everyone. And Christians have an unimaginable fortune. The inheritance of Jesus Christ itself. Glory itself awaiting us when we enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, there's not only a kingdom awaiting us, but there is even the promise of becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So becoming a partaker actually has two parts, right? There's partaking of the divine nature, but there's also having escaped from the corruption in the world, and I want to deal with them in reverse order. First, low-hanging fruit, because it still feels like the season to poke people in the eye about this. Whichever political party you probably identify too strongly with, I bet you think there's terrible corruption on the other side. And if you're intelligent, you're also aware of the, of the terrible corruption on your side. And Peter is saying one day we will escape from all the corruption on both sides. Oh, but it's not just politics. It's corruption in the world because of sinful desire. Because of our desires. Right? Desires for power, desires for riches, desires for sex. We have all seen the corruption in the world from those desires, and we've seen the damage that comes with it. But also, desires for comfort, desires for a good family, desires for the right job, desires to have things go your own way. Right? It's not just the desires of the world out there, it's the desires of the world in us. In fact, none of the things I just named is itself bad. Power, riches, those are neutral to good. Sex, comfort, good family, good job, those are good too. But we corrupt them when our desires become demands and we would do anything to get them to the point of wickedness or neglecting greater duties. And we will escape from that too my friends, because God has forgiven us for those desires and all the ways we've pursued them. And God will work those desires out of our hearts as we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ and we are made partakers of the divine nature. I got some good news for you, those of you who are struggling with some sinful desire that you don't even feel like you can tell people about for whatever reason. As we share God's nature, our characters will become like his and we will no longer give in or even have corrupt desires. And I want to point out, that's not a command. That's not an encouragement to go do better. That's just a fact. That's how it's going to be, Christians. So I want you to rejoice. If you feel like you thought you'd be better than this by now, (laughs) but also guess what? It's going to be everything you want it to be and more. Now, that, again, that's not to say it won't take moral effort, but that's next week's sermon. I'm going to make Pastor Mike deal with that. Um, <laughs> the point is, Christian, you are going to be a partaker of the divine nature. And this is where I'm going to park for the rest of the sermon. Because this is perhaps the greatest promise of the entire Bible. 
And listen, I'm going to get real high-minded and theological for a minute, and and I'm going to try and bring you along. But my friends, what we're encountering here is what Reformed theologians refer to as union with Christ. And I remember when I got this in seminary, because it, it opened my eyes to how much bigger the gospel is than I first realized. I mean, so if you don't know my story, my senior year of college, I threw up long series of events that involved every pastor that's like ever been the PCA in Oklahoma City, apparently, um, found out that I was a sinner, but a forgiven sinner, and that God would love me forever, and he would always forgive me, and that I'm a child of God and cannot mess it up, and it was incredible, right? It freed me, and it's still freeing me. It freed me from insecurities. It freed me from pressures, It motivated me to tell everyone I could about this amazing, incredible news that God loved us so much that he would give his only son so that he could forgive us and have us as as his children. And my friends, that's incredible news that should bring us all great joy. And yet, here's the shocker. That news is merely a subsection of the gospel. Now, now, don't get me wrong, it's a huge, amazing, even central subsection. But it is merely a subsection of the greater news of union with Christ. Uh, For the theologically minded amongst you, yes, Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins and was raised for our justification, but ultimately our justification is applied to us through union with Christ. Our sanctification happens because of our union with the crucified and risen Christ, and we will be glorified because of our union with the glorified and risen Christ. The the union with Christ encompasses all the benefits of the gospel. And this is what Jesus was talking about in the high priestly prayer with all that us and him and he and us as he is in the Father stuff. It's what he meant in John 15, 4 when he said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's what Paul was speaking of in Ephesians when he prayed that believers would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and instructed us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And it's what he means pretty much every time Paul writes the words in Christ. And John Calvin. I told you all in Sunday school I'd quote John Calvin. Here we are. Uh, John Calvin explained in the Institutes that union with Christ is the intention of the gospel to make us sooner or later like God and make us engrafted into his body participants not only in all these benefits but also in himself so that the Christian so that God grows more and more, sorry, so that God grows more and more into one body with us until he becomes completely one with us. And he wrote a lot more that Pastor Mike already quoted this morning, so I won't re-quote it. Uh, And if you weren't in Sunday school, go listen to it, and you'll hear more quotes about union with Christ. Uh, A lot of the early church fathers used a, a word that we now translate deification, Uh, that actually carried over into our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, but by which they mean the same thing, union with Christ. 
All right, I mentioned Mormons earlier. I'm, I'm going to pause here. When we say deification, we don't mean what they mean, okay? I want to be careful. No one, at least no one that's a Christian, means that we actually become God, okay? There's a creature-creator distinction, and, de and that is never crossed. We are never God, okay? But there are communicable attributes. That's a big fancy word for it. That, that means things that are God's attributes that he gave to us when he created us in his image and that we can regain when we participate in him in our redemption. What is more, not only can we become like God, we may not be able to become God, but God is in us, Christians, right? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So there is a mystical and mysterious sense in which we do have some sort of connection to the divine nature. And let me tell you why I bother to tell you all that. I, I was just really struck by the fact that as I read on Union with Christ for this sermon, uh, which I've read about a lot before, a lot of contemporary theologians, especially Reformed folk, they really emphasize how partaking of the divine nature has to do with the moral aspect of being conformed to the image of Christ, to imitate his moral virtue, and they're not wrong. That's absolutely what it means. But, like, some of them got dangerously close to denying. They were very hesitant to admit that union with Christ is much more than that. John Calvin wasn't afraid to say it's more than that. The early church fathers weren't afraid to say it was more than that. Just read Cyril of Alexandria, who dedicated all sorts of pages to how we have access to God's energies, which I know sounds real new agey, but he meant something biblical by it, right? Energies like faith, hope, grace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Um, and so I tell, you, I tell you all of that because... I don't want you to be like those Reformed theologians. I want you to be biblical. I want you to be amazed and curious that we mysteriously, mystically partake in the nature of God. And one day, because of our union with Christ, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Which means, while I don't fully understand what that means, that we will bear some resemblance to the glory Jesus showed at the transfiguration. Which, by the way, was very physical, right? They could touch Jesus in his glory. But that means that you too, New Age person, can become godlike, but not the way you think. right? God, not not godlike like an evil supervillain wants to become all-powerful, mighty genie but rather you become virtuous and glorious in the same way Jesus' human nature to which we're united is glorious. And this led C.S. Lewis to make an application in his essay, The Weight of Glory, that it is hardly possible to think 
too deeply or too often about the glory of your neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's quite the saying, but I think he's right. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke, work, we marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. And that is the glory you will be welcomed in to. I could say a lot more than that. The books have been written about this, but I just want you to know, do you want more knowledge of this? Do you want access to this special knowledge that gives you, makes you a partaker of the divine nature so that you have all things for life and godliness? It's readily available for you in the Bible and in Jesus Christ, in knowledge of him by who we have his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of that divine nature with the one who called us and the one who we partake with. Because it is Jesus who has given you all you need by his power. It is Jesus' power you have. It is Jesus who has given you these promises and it is Jesus who has made you a partaker and who you will be a partaker with in order to give you his power and comfort to deal with whatever is coming next. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, wow, you, you, we're going to be with you, we're going to be near you, we're going to be like you, we have your promises and power now, encourage us with that, help us believe that, give us some understanding of what that means, and drive us on from one level of glory to the next, and all this we ask for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. We ask this all through Jesus' name. Amen.